The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter Ella, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 55, Rim of the World, our interview with Zach Stentz, screenwriter and producer of the new Netflix film, coincidentally entitled Rim of the World. After the interview, Ella and I review the film. Before we get started, i got to tell you how this show came about. I'd seen the preview for Rim of the World online and thought it looked like a lot of fun. Um, then one night, about a week before the premiere, <laughs> Zach tweeted that he was available for interviews with uh, genre blogs, podcasts, print media. Just tweet him if you were interested. Uh, I thought, well, he probably means big pro media, not a father-daughter show. But what the heck, I tweeted him anyway, and soon we had a date lined up for the interview, which uh, shows you it never hurts to ask. Remember, you can find us online at generationsgeek.com, including blog posts from me and handy links to all our episodes. Plus, check out the Generations Geek Instagram, featuring Ella's geeky adventures. Now, on with the show. Zach Stentz, welcome to Generations Geek. It's really great to be here. We also have my daughter, Ella, from London. Hi, Ella. Hi. Thank you so much for, uh, for uh, reaching out. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, we know that you're busy. you got a lot going on. Uh, now, we're actually recording this the day before Rim of the World premieres on Netflix, so we haven't seen it yet. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, the logline, the synopsis? <laughs> Rim of the World is a an adventure movie, a science fiction adventure movie about four 13-year-old kids up at summer camp in the San Bernardino Mountains east of Los Angeles when an alien invasion breaks out. And by circumstance, they find themselves with the, the literal key to stopping the alien invasion, um, but only if they can get it across 70 miles of uh, the war zone that, that Los Angeles has become to, uh, to JPL in Pasadena, where, uh, where it will accomplish its goal. And they have many adventures and learn many lessons and have many close calls along the way. That's amazing. Okay, this semester I wrote a paper on Attack the Block, and I talked about the theme of, like, childhood nostalgia in 21st century content, like Stranger Things. I think it's super clear that Rim of the World is a love letter to movies like Goonies or Stand By Me. Was there anything specific that inspired you? Um, yeah, several things inspired me, actually. One was uh, in, in early 2016 when, uh, when I decided to write this, um, I had for several years been lamenting the fact that the kind of wonderful, warm-hearted 1980s kids' adventure movies, like the ones that you referenced that I grew up with, weren't being made anymore by the studios. And it felt like there was a big gap out there. And it seemed very unfair to me that uh, that kids, um, my own my own kids' age, um, didn't have those those adventures and those kid and teen characters that they could relate to. Um, the way I did growing up. So I decided that I wanted to, to write something in that wheelhouse. But 
I didn't want it to be like Super 8 um, or uh, Stranger Things or the new Transformers movies, which are all set in the... They're, they're not just throwbacks to the 1980s films. They're actually set in the 1980s. Um, I thought it was much more interesting to to see what does what does an Amblin movie look like in in 2019? What is an, what do those characters look like in the in the 21st century in the age of helicopter parenting and, uh, <laughs> and smartphones and not having any st- unstructured time where you're allowed to go off and uh, have adventures on your own? So so that was that was the 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 kind of gap that I was responding to. And then my, my own kids go to summer camp up in the San Bernardino mountains. And there's a highway that you take going up and back called rim of the world highway, which I always thought was a really cool name. And it's, it's called that because it overlooks, um, it's up at like 6,000 feet above sea level. And there are these spectacular views where on a clear day, you can see practically all of the Los Angeles basin spread spread before you. And while I was driving down one time, I just had this image of like, what, what would this landscape look like if it was a war zone and kids from the summer camp had to go into it. And that was the, that was a little acorn that the, uh, that the, uh, our, our mighty Oak grew from looking at the trailer, which I really loved right away. As soon as I saw it, uh, the, the casting is nicely diverse. Was that something that you had baked into your screenplay? Absolutely, it was. Um, it, one, it was it was a way of conveying. It was it was it was a very visual way of conveying that this isn't one of those '80s films where mm-hmm. the kids were in almost every case either all white or like all white with their with their one with their one uh, uh, minority friend. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's simply the fact that in 2019, half of all kids in the United States under 18 are people of color. So that's what that's when when you have a diverse cast, you're you're not just you know making a statement. You're reflecting the reality of today. And it also, um, by diversifying the cast, it also was an opportunity to put a new spin on old tropes. Yeah. Um, the, the character that Benji Flores plays, Dariush, is, at least on the surface, before you get to know him, he is a, a, a classic rich kid bully from Beverly Hills. If this movie had been made in 1985, he'd be played by James Spader or Billy <laughs> He'd be the sneering blonde villain. But if you know Beverly Hills and what Beverly Hills is now, Beverly Hills is half Persian. So um, so it thought I thought it was a fun spin to take the rich kid from Beverly Hills. But now he's half African-American and half Persian as the uh, as the as the character is is written and so on and so forth with the with the other characters. So was it just in you said it was just in 2016 that you came up with the idea? Yeah, in, in in movie terms, the, the you know three years from uh, inception to to release of a of an original movie is uh, is is the fast track. I I wrote the script over uh, summer of 2016 mostly, and as I was about two thirds of the way done um, with the script, a little show that no one had heard of called Stranger Things dropped, and all of a sudden. <laughs> 
you know, it, it went from being having my agents and managers say, why are you writing this? No one wants stories like this anymore to, OK, maybe there is a maybe, maybe there is an audience for this a- after all. How did you balance your time working on this with your other projects? Did that overlap with your time on The Flash? It it did uh, overlap with my time on The Flash, and it overlapped with me writing another spec script, and it, it overlapped with me working on Booster Gold. Um, <laughs> luckily, I was, um, I, I was working as a consultant on The Flash at the time, so they only needed me two days a week. And um, I, I, so I had big gaps of time that, uh, that weren't spoken for. But I, I tend to write, if, if I'm really feeling a script, I tend to write it in a, in a kind of burst. And, uh, and that's how it ended up working. Although it, in this case, if I'm remembering right, it was several bursts with, you know, flash episodes and uh, rewrite on Booster Gold uh, in between. How active were you during production like were you on set for rewrites at all yes this is the most active i've ever been this is the most active i've ever been in uh, uh, or active i've been involved in uh, in a feature film um i wasn't really on set for thor or x-men first class except as a visitor um whereas with this one, I was on set literally every day as a writer and as a producer, helping, you know, working on rewrites, brainstorming with, uh, with McGee, um, you know, how to, how to change things on the fly when we needed to use a different location than was in the script, um, et cetera, et cetera. I was, I was actually involved all the way through, um, post-production and into editing and, and, and right up, right up until the end, I I was the I was the one who found the composer. You know, I I, I felt like I I definitely uh, pulled my weight as a producer on this one. That's so special. Yeah. Do you have any favorite stories that you can tell us? Um, let's see. There was the time in Mammoth. Um, we were shooting up in Mammoth Lakes, and a an actual black bear wandered through set. That was exciting. Uh, <laughs> That was a very exciting morning. Um, there was um, w- there were a lot of late nights um, at this creepy closed down mental health facility out in Pomona, oh. where we fought or or where we shot nearly uh, nearly half of the uh, half of the script. And then there was um, we got to shoot for three days at on the back lot at Universal Studios, and one of those days. We were at Courthouse Square, which if you're a Back to the Future fan, you will recognize that immediately, that location immediately from Back to the Future, from Gremlins, from more movies than uh, than I can I can even mention. And there there was something completely iconic about uh, about shooting, shooting in that location. What was it like working with McGee? I mean, he's, a, a, you know, obviously a renowned action movie director. So uh, how did he take that, you know, like working with the kids and, and what was that like? Um, it was wonderful. Um, McGee was incredibly collaborative. You know, when you, when you make a feature, you it's very different from TV. You, you know, like like TV, the director kind of works for you. 
Um, in a feature, you kind of work for the director. It's really the director making the making the film, and you know, I'll I'll be honest. You know, like McGee really responded to to my script, but he he did a rewrite himself with a talented young writer named uh, named named uh, Jimmy Warden, and they kind of edged it up. They they edged it up a bit. Um, you know, and. At the end of the day, I think it actually made it a better project. We kind of, I think, I think the end film is kind of a mix of um, McGee's edgier sensibility and mm-hmm. my kind of more throwback Amblin um, <laughs> sweetness, for for lack of a better term. And it's it's something more interesting than if either of us had gotten our way a hundred percent. So he was he was a wonderful collaborator. His skills, his technical skill set is off the charts. You know, he was calling out like which which lens to use in each shot, and you know, like okay, we're going to do this as a oneer now, and and you know, there 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 was a lot of uh, there was a lot going on on the technical level, especially mm-hmm. for a fairly modestly budget budgeted film, but. He really worked well with. I, I don't know how much he's worked with kids before, except on the babysitter. But I, I think he pulled amazing performances out of out of these four very young uh, young kids. Certainly, from what is in the trailer, their their performances look amazing. Um, I, I when you mentioned the bear, I kind I <laughs> I got this image of Mick G just like rolling with it. And and trying to get that on film. There's lots of discussion about about bears um, at one point, but uh, but no bears actually appear on camera. I will spoiler alert. We would have had to get a bear wrangler or something. Yeah, you've mentioned some of your upcoming projects. Uh, can I ask you a few questions about those? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now I'm just getting this some of this from IMDb, which isn't always accurate. But IMDb tells me that you are working on the Big Trouble in Little China remake. Is that true? That is a project that I worked on with my former writing partner about two years ago, and okay. um, we we turned in the script. And frankly, I don't know what's going on with it because. Um, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is yeah. attached to star in it, and Dwayne Johnson is has movies stacked up for <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> approximately the next eight years. So it is unclear where how this would fit into that, um, how this would fit into his schedule. So it, it's one of those you do the work and then you just wait. It's out of your hands and you wait and see what happens. Yep, hurry up and wait. Exactly. And you mentioned this earlier too with Booster Gold. You're working with Greg Berlanti again on a on a superhero project. Tell me a little about that. I'm I'm not familiar with that character actually. Oh, Booster Gold is a wonderful character. He's he's probably the most Marvel like of the uh, of the DC characters in that he he comes close to being an antihero, and he's very uh, he's very human scaled. He's basically. Uh, very very quickly booster gold is a um is a 25th century football star who is disgraced and uh and in a Pete Rose like betting scandal and the only job he can get is as a janitor in a museum 
little does he know that because it's the 25th century, there's a time machine in the museum's basement. And so he basically steals a bunch of um, high-tech equipment and goes back in, in time to our time, to the early 21st century, to set himself as a, up as a superhero so he can be rich, famous, and get chicks. Uh, and, That's the and dream. It's, he's living the dream, but it, you know, it's a story about a kind of douchebag with a heart of gold who has to become a real hero. <laughs> And I had a tremendous time working on that with Greg and Sarah Schechter. And um, we got a script that Greg is super happy with. And it, the situation is very similar to um, to Big Trouble in Little China in that it's a DC film. And the DC strategy is seems to be seems to change every week or every month. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we just don't know how how it fits into what they want to do with what, what Warner brothers wants to do with the DC universe. It's a script I'm very proud of, and uh, I hope they do something at, uh, with in the future, but it's again, it's out of my hands. There's another project on IMDB that I couldn't find much about uh, lore. That was actually, that's how I met McGee. Um, that was a uh, an original script originally called The Iron Age um, that I wrote back in 2015. That uh, TV it was a TV pilot um, that I like to say was Alias with Magic. Um, nice. <laughs> it was a uh, you know CIA with wizards uh, with with wizard show, and that's something that um, I had written and uh, McGee really liked, and we. We're developing it over at Freeform, and uh, and it, it was one of those things that you love that just doesn't go. So so that one's that one's uh, uh, you know either dead or resting its eyes right now. That's too bad because yeah, that sounds like a really fit into the current market of of shows on a streaming network or something. Oh, one would think. <laughs> In this house, we love the first Thor movie. So <laughs> when uh, <laughs> uh, when you were working on that, what was it like creating an origin story that early on in the MCU for a character like who would become so vital? It was scary. It was really <laughs> scary at first because you know the, the MCU had been kind of uh, you know it was in its very early stages. They were still figuring things. They were still figuring things out at that point, and. Um, you know, they had had a lot of success with Iron Man, but Iron Man was the the first Iron Man was the most grounded the MCU has has ever gotten. And then we had to follow it up with, uh, you know, a space Viking with a magic hammer that flies <laughs> in the air, uh, which is no, there's no way that's grounded. So so making it plausible that Thor could exist in the same universe as Iron Man was a big challenge, but it's one that I like to think that we, that we ended up rising to. Definitely. How do you feel about his character development, like sort of through, through Ragnarok? I will be honest. I, I, I liked parts of the dark world, especially the Thor Loki stuff, but the, the mm-hmm. bigger plot didn't really, uh, didn't really move me all that much. Um, I actually got hangry a couple of times in the first Avengers um, movie because there were moments that I thought that they, that they didn't get his character. Um, but 
I loved Ragnarok. I thought Ragnarok. <laughs> I thought Ragnarok was terrific. It's both the funniest that the MCU has ever been, but if you look underneath the humor, there's actually this beautiful story about the reconciliation between Thor and Loki, and Loki Loki realizing that underneath everything else, he really does love his brother, and that he really is a, a son of Asgard. Um, it when it uh, when it counts, and and I really. I, I was I was really touched by that, and it felt it felt very much like a spiritual sequel to uh, to the first movie, even even while it went off, uh, it, it it had its very own unique tone. You took the words out of my freaking mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're both huge uh, Ragnarok fans. Uh, by the way, we had we had our first draft of the first Thor. We used Immigrant Song, so you know. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> It was gonna happen eventually. It it it. I loved you know. I was you know. I think you know throwing up the devil sign in the theater when uh, when they when uh, they started playing the the Zeppelin riff. But uh, um, you know, but, but it was also a little bittersweet because it was like, yeah, that was a good decision. You should have trusted us on that the first time. We don't have time to go through all your credits, I guess, but. Um... I did want to give a shout out to the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was a great show with a great cast that wasn't given the time it deserved. You know, it's one of those. It's one of those things. If if it existed, uh, if if it existed now, oh, yeah. it would. Uh, you know, it, it would probably run for like eight seasons, but. Uh, it was it was a wonderful you know thirty episodes of TV you know thirty thirty one episodes of TV that we did um, it was a unique thing and now it was you know I got to I, I watched the uh, the Terminator Dark Fate trailer um, which kicked butt this morning and was delighted to see my old boss uh, and creator of the Sarah Connor Chronicles uh, Josh Friedman was one of the writers on the on the new Terminator movie. I'm freaking out now because I did not see that. So did that uh, trailer just drop today? Yeah, that trailer just dropped this morning. It's going to melt your brain oh. with how great the action <laughs> is and how how um, badass Linda Hamilton is. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. I was distracted about... I was watching the uh, tiny teaser that they dropped for Star Trek Picard. I See, that I haven't seen. Does that look good? Yes, it looks good. It's a very short little teaser. It doesn't have a lot in it. It's it's well, it's one of those things where I don't know if anything that's in here will actually be in the show itself, but it kind of sets the tone. But I'm a huge huge Star Trek fan, so I'm I'm all in on that. I'm excited about it, but it's one of those things, you know, it, it's one of those things that I'm excited and nervous about at the same time because I, I was a huge I, I've been a been a Star Trek fan since I could walk. Um, you know, going, going, yep. going back to the seventies, um, you know, <laughs> watching reruns with my mom of the of the original show on a black and white TV. Um, so, so, you know, I, I I love the Next Generation, but the last couple seasons of the Next Generation, they were kind of, especially that seventh season, they were kind of running out of gas creatively. So. I I I I have high hopes, but I worry that it'll be like the X Files revival, where it's <laughs> where where they brought back the X Files and and everyone was really excited, and then the X Files came on and they were like, oh yeah, they 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 
kind of were out of ideas towards the end of that, weren't they? I have many comments. One is I haven't been able to make it through the most recent season of the X-Files thing because it just does absolutely nothing for me. And I was a huge fan while it was on. Uh, yes, that's sad. Yeah, very sad. Uh, my, other, my other comment is I'm so happy to talk with someone else who experienced Star Trek in black and white because <laughs> very few people uh, lived through that experience at this point, it seems. But I think the other challenge for next gen, for the, for the old school TV shows, is that's when they were still putting out 22, 23, 24, 25 episodes a season. And that really is a grueling amount of shows to crank out for seven years. And so I really like that we're now getting to this, uh, this the, in the new streaming world, that there's more shows that just put out 10 or 15 uh, episodes. And I think that makes it easier to really stay on point. Yeah, it's, it's you know, having, having worked on, uh, on, on 22 episode seasons, which is kind of the, the network standard, even though, even though that's, that's changing. Um, if, if it's serialized, you end up kind of having two mini seasons, like mm-hmm. the first 13 and the, and the back nine, as they, as they call them tend to have their own identities, but yeah, yeah it is, it is grueling doing, uh, it is grueling doing a full network run. And especially with, um, with the fact that, um, they were largely standalone episodes, um, yeah. I, I find standalone episodes a lot harder to write than serialized, which which surprises a lot of people who aren't uh, who aren't TV writers. But it's like, oh yeah, when it's like all one one story, you're 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 setting up future future episodes in the ones you're doing. But when you're essentially doing Mission Impossible every week, you have to come up with a with a new science fiction premise that that people haven't haven't seen before. So. That's why, you know, by episode six and seven, they were they were bringing on, uh, you know, long lost relatives every, every <laughs> episode, which is always a sign of creative exhaustion. <laughs> when you're serialized, you already you have that inertia that's already all built up, you know, it's starting from scratch to uh, get the drama going. Yeah, it's um, it's it's it it, it definitely uh, it, it it definitely is a lot a lot different of an experience. I frankly, with with long longer running ones, I like the kind of mix, you know, like like what what the middle seasons of Buffy did with like the they they'd have the overarching story for the uh, for the um, the season, but they'd also have some episodes where there was character continuity, but there was you know, a beginning and middle and end of the of the particular episode that uh, that you were watching. Mm-hmm. So, have you uh, been watching Disco? Um, no, it's one. It's it's terrible to say, but um, I, I'm waiting for the uh, I'm waiting for Blu-ray because uh, <laughs> I just I, there's something in me rebels against paying another uh, you know ten bucks a month for. Uh, no, it makes sense. For, for Star Trek and the Star Trek and the Good Fight and CSI reruns, I'm I'm sorry, <laughs> but they you, do have you, the new Twilight Zone now, so I'm I've I've seen a couple episodes of that and it it hasn't really wowed me, Frank. It it hasn't really wowed me, and mm. you know, I, I say that as someone who worked on the uh, the little remembered and little loved uh, UPN remake of the Twilight yeah. Zone from the early 2000s. I, uh, I I haven't started even watching Twilight Zone yet because I've been binging other things. But um, 
there's an ocean of content out there right now. Yeah. Following up on watching Star Trek in black and white, was that the thing that hooked you into to genre stuff? Star Trek, or was there other other things I, that I, my two the my two great genre influences as a as a five year old were were Star Trek and uh, in Tintin comics, oh. which uh, <laughs> Tintin comics were what made me fall in love with uh, with action adventure uh, with globe trotting action adventure mm-hmm. with uh, some you know genre over overtones. Um, I, I you know. I, the, those those Tintins still hold up, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later. And with it, a kid, a kid on an adventure. Exactly. Although they're very ambiguous about that, you know, like Tintin's a boy reporter, but he's like, you know, shooting guns and, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. flying uh, seaplanes and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So Room of the World uh, is dropping directly on Netflix, like we said, with Netflix obviously creating more and more originals, but not only that with um, original movies being made outside of Netflix and then going directly to Netflix as opposed to the theater. Like, do you think that's a trend that's going to become bigger and bigger? I think so. I mean, it's, it's always difficult to predict the future, but we are in this, this environment right now where the studios by and large have abandoned genres that entire genres that used to be their bread and butter um you know not just not just mid-list you know mid-budget adventures but uh but the the romantic comedy and i i think those genres as as audiences get trained to only roll out to movie theaters for low budget high concept horror or these huge spectacle movies um, I, I think you're going to more and more find that all of those other genres that people love uh, are going to migrate to to, uh, to this not just Netflix but the other streaming services. And then the other thing that I think you're going to find is as um, it, it, all of the studios seem to be starting up their own streaming services. You know, Disney has Disney Plus. Warner yeah, Brothers yeah. is going to have one. Universal is going to have one. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. They're going to take their content back from from Netflix and Amazon Prime, which means that there's going to be more and more demand by them for original material to uh, to fill out their to fill out their libraries. So I, I I'm I'm hopeful that we're about to you know after after spending a decade now in uh, in an environment where everything is about branded IP and remakes and reboots, I, I think we're about to go into a new, f- enter into a new streaming driven phase of, uh, of original movies again. I, th- I think that's quite likely. And what amuses me about it is when cable first came out and, and over the decades of cable, one thing that cable subscribers complain about is how you have to pay for all these things that you don't want and, and wishing that it could just be more of an a la carte thing. But now we're shifting to an a la carte thing and now we're annoyed because we have to pay for all these separate <laughs> things a la carte. It'll be nice if, I wonder if someone will do a, a, a bigger thing where they kind of package together streaming services into one bill. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I think, I think, 
I think you're going to have to because because at a certain point people are just going to get annoyed and uh, people are just going to get annoyed at the fact that that it, you know they they've got their cable bill again except they're paying like six or seven different services instead of uh, instead of instead of one. I I think they're going to find ways of of bundling some of these smaller yeah. ones into uh, into larger ones, which I I hope they do because you know for for example. Um, you know, I keep hearing that Doom Patrol is like, you know, one of the most exciting superhero shows out there, but it's locked up on DC Universe, which is this this very niche little little streaming service that's owned by Warner Brothers. So I'm hoping that if Warner, um, you know, if Warner, not if, but when Warner launches their own streaming service that they fold, you know, they can fold that into it and you'd be, you know, paying for more stuff. Well, I um, you pro you probably have to be uh, heading out here. You probably have other uh, interviews lined up. I would guess. Indeed, I do, <laughs> and you know I've got to keep keep working on new stuff. So yeah. uh, so, but I've I've had a delightful time talking to you both. Um, I I hope you have a great time uh, uh, finishing out your studies in London. Oh, and, thank uh, you. And uh, I, I look forward to hearing the uh, to hearing the uh, the podcast. Yes, we're going to uh, we'll both be watching the movie as soon as we can, and so we'll be adding a little bit some talk amongst ourselves uh, after we see the movie, and then we'll let you know when the podcast is out. Awesome! Let me know what you think of it. We will. Thanks so much for oh. coming on. Oh, yeah, take thank care. You. Thank you. Thank yep. you for inviting me. Bye bye. 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 And we're back, just me and Ella. We've now both watched Rim of the World, which, as I mentioned mm -hmm. at the top of the show, we hadn't seen yet when we interviewed Zach because it was the day before the premiere. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Zach interview was spoiler-free, really, but I think now for yes. this, we're going to get right into it. So if you haven't watched it yet, go back and watch it, then come back and listen to this part of the show. <laughs> We'll wait. <laughs> Before we get started, I just want to say, when Jen Jen slapped all three boys at the same time, I felt that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was in my notes to mention the, th the, th the Three Stooges slap of the boys. Brilliant. Okay, but let's, let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. I think we're both giving it a thumbs up. Should we just say that outright? Oh, thumbs up. I have one problem. Do you want to know what my one problem is? What's your one problem? It needed to be longer. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, That was any time I had an issue, the only issue was that it needed more time. It it clocked in at a at a brisk hour and a half. And well, not even. Or, right? or with credits. Or a couple maybe minutes exactly under. 90 minutes. Yeah. Um it was so likable. And those four kids were all so likable. They are so sweet. They you are just, yeah, babies. You, you want to spend more time with them. Oh, my God. And, yeah, I mean, just see more of, like, their characters bonding and everything. I mean, like, honestly, my only thing was, like, this movie needed more time. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, it's like they, they, they blew the budget with their 90 minutes in the first place. <laughs> okay so like the first thing where i definitely knew i was in love with this movie was when they queued up a devo track pretty early on <laughs> wait what wait 
Am I deaf? When did they play Devo? They played Devo over the introduction of what's her name? I've forgotten the characters. I'm so horrible with they played Jenga. Girl You They played Girl You Want. Wait, oh my god. As she was coming out of the airport after she conned that guy. That. Oh my god. Into helping her into what the a country. Star. <laughs> Listen. Jen Jen, God, I wish this movie had come out when I was like like 13. Oh, you would have eaten this god. movie up. Well, I my mean, you're, god. you're eating it up now, Jen, but I mean... Jen Jen would have changed my life. <laughs> um, so let, let's step back to what Zach said in the interview about how he was thinking back to those classic kids movies of his youth. Um, mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're talking about growing up watching E.T. and Goonies and Stand By Me. Uh, and I guess I was, well, probably not really a kid anymore when I saw Stand By Me. But anyway, those classic kids on an adventure movies. And he said that he felt like there wasn't one of those right now, not a contemporary one. Of course, he started working on this like just before uh, Stranger Things, so that hadn't hit yet. But so that that's what he was trying to get was to recapture that feel in a movie that he could watch with his kids. And well, he nailed it. I mean, this has everything. Yeah. You well, want. and I mean, the second he said that, I was like, oh. Obviously, like, because I was like, I mean, kids, you know, you can watch The Breakfast Club or whatever, you can watch Goonies, but he was like, you know, that's a gap in like modern cinema. I was like, oh my God, he's right. He's right. You know, it it was a little bit harder PG 13 than I was expecting, which I'm not saying as a critique. I'm Mm -hmm. just, yeah. uh, And so, just for, you know, parents that do want to watch it with their kids, you know, you just have to keep that in mind that they're, the language and some of the uh, scenarios, it's definitely PG-13. So, you know, if you were to fire that up with mm-hmm. a six-year-old, you'd be getting a lot of questions about what does that mean? <laughs> maybe, maybe, well, depending on the yeah, kid. Got a little bit of language. But in a very perfectly contemporary way for how kids, oh, 13-year-old yeah. kids talk. Very realistic chatter between <laughs> yeah. the young people. Um, <laughs> it was just so so likable and the kid the like the geek kid was so Alex? good yeah i mean all four of the the leads they were all did great so stunning but they were all given sort of emotional backstories uh and yeah. so, so they all had to carry some weight in their performances they all had their scenes where they had to get a little emotional and it was just so well done but it, it you know and it starts out in the actual camp the rim of the world camp. And so that in itself is a great callback to any movie that you've ever seen. That is a, a summer camp movie. Yeah. You know, it's got the goofy counselors. Also, it's so funny. It's if got you're the like loser counselor and the cool counselor. It's got everything. <laughs> the dude, the dude who plays that first counselor. I don't remember what his name in the movie is. I think it's like Logan or something, but that first counselor that's like, Alex, what's up? Here's the black man handshake. You don't do that. That guy. That he's played by King Batch, who was like a big Viner, like one of the biggest Viners when Vine oh. was, you know, alive and well. Okay. And they did, they so, also, there was this series on Vine of like literally like summer camp Vines. Mm-hmm. And so watching King Batch, uh, just be like, hey, what's uh, up? I was like, where am I? Like, okay, that <laughs> is funny because me being an old man, I had no name recognition for him at all. Uh, but, no, no. But, but I. Well, instantly... I'm sure, like, 
I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know King Batch just like looking at him, but I want to look at the cast. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, he was. He was. He was great as as a person who has a fear of heights. I loved how they handled Alex's fear of heights when he had a little minor panic attack on the zip line mm-hmm. thing. That was done so well. It was, you know, and and perfectly the perfect level of trigger for anyone who is afraid of heights. When he looked over that edge, I was like leaning back in my chair. It's like, oh no, no, no. But then, uh, you know, they give just uh, just the right amount of time to kind of set up the kids, introduce the situation, and then the aliens come in, and then it turns into the the sci-fi action adventure movie with the kids, and. Mm-hmm. So much fun. They all have their own sort of individual reactions to the situation that that fits with their character. One thing that I really enjoyed about the aliens, about their ships, was the very, like, 1980s video game pew-pew sound of their weapons. That was, like, hats off to the sound designer (laughs) on this movie. Or whoever... You know, maybe it was Zach, maybe it was McGee, but someone somewhere said, we got to have great retro pew-pew sounds. (laughs) And it was the the perfect choice. So there's a moment early in the, that that, that moment earlier in the film when they're all starting to freak out about what they're going to do and the boys are arguing and then the girl just gives them the slap across all three of them and then Alex, but it was mostly the other two boys. So Um, Alex was like, what'd you hit me for? Because oh. you needed it. <laughs> All three men that needed a slap. was so funny. I think Zach needs to put out a, a list of the Easter eggs, the the callbacks, oh, yeah, in this because there's a few that I spotted and really enjoyed uh, when the kids get chased into the kitchen, the camp kitchen, by the alien dog monster thing. Mm-hmm. Clearly a callback to the kids in Jurassic Park hiding oh, in the kitchen Jurassic Park vibes. Yep. from, from mm-hmm. the Velociraptors. And so there were these things that played off uh, classic films. And then you mentioned earlier Breakfast Club because, you know, that's a teens kind of movie, not in an adventure, mm-hmm. but nevertheless a classic 80s teen kind of movie. Well, there was a big shout out to it at least that's how I took it. There was a scene where they they, uh, they they reach a point near the end where they just feel like they're overwhelmed, like they're not going to succeed, that they're not going to help destroy the alien threat. And one of them says, who do we think we are? And all four of them, it kind of goes around the circle. They mm-hmm. all give a one-word description of themselves. Mm-hmm. Nerd, criminal, orphan, joke. And to me, that was a direct callback to uh, one of the, the voiceovers in The Breakfast Club, where they refer to themselves as a geek, a criminal, a princess, a jock, and a basket case. Absolutely. That goes so, that, so you thought the same thing? That did that scream yeah, Breakfast Club? Yeah, I mean, Club it's also you? just like if it, if it wasn't intentional, I'm kind of like maybe it was in the back of your head, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> and then. And as I said, I'm like embarrassed. I like don't want to now that we've like seen the movie, and now that I've seen the movie, and I'm like, oh my god, I love this. I like don't want to. <laughs> I'm like, what if he listens to this? <laughs> <laughs> I think that he will. I like don't want to talk about it. <laughs> he 
he will enjoy so much how the the amount of geek joy we're having over his film because it was exactly what he was trying to do um and then the other one the other callback that i loved and this is getting very very close to the uh, end of the film but uh alex gets separated from the other three and he has to Mm -hmm. face off against the alien monster alone Mm -hmm. and he comes up with a scheme to use this little flare gun to ignite an experimental rocket engine to to kill the alien and he's nervous. So back at the beginning of the film, there was a great little scene of camp mother embarrassment <laughs> where his mom makes him sing a song with her when they say goodbye. And then it turns out that it's in front of like all the kids gawking at them. And so it's a hilarious, yeah, that was you know, funny. embarrassing that was a good story. Bit, yeah. Uh, so then at the end of the movie, uh, as he's scared and, and cornered by the alien and he's getting ready to spring this trap, he starts singing that song again to himself. So on the one hand, it's like this touching like moment where the kid is singing the song that his mother sings with him. But as he's waiting alone to kill the alien with a weapon in his hand, singing to himself, it's exactly what Ripley does at the end of Alien. <gasps> I didn't think about that. She's singing to herself and she's got yeah. the uh, like mountain climbing, like the hook you know, shooting device mm-hmm. that she's going to use to blast the alien out and finally kill it. And so there are these homages to classic films. And I just suspect that for every one of those that I noticed, there's probably a half dozen that I missed. Yeah. Just little things, little touches. You know, there's the scene where the car crashes into the L.A. River and then the monster Mm -hmm. eventually comes back together because it regenerates. You could draw a line between that and Terminator 2. I mean, there's lots of movies that have car chases that end up in the L.A. River because it's just this concrete mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So those were the little shout-outs to other movies that I wanted to mention. Uh, it is an action movie. It's got, it's got loads of action. It's, uh, as we mentioned, directed by McGee. Uh, mm-hmm. But it really does take the uh, time to have all sorts of character moments. Um, I don't know. It was also sweet. I mean, also j- them just being like awkward 13 year olds, like when they're yes. all like, okay, we're all going to give Jen Jen her own bed. And then Jen Jen comes in and she's like, one of you can sleep like in the bed with me. And then they all like run out at the same time. And they're like, who's going to sleep? <laughs> that was yeah. funny. You get the quiet times between the big action set pieces and, and every one of those quiet times, then you get these nice character moments where you see each of the kids working through the, the the stuff that they carry as, you know, that yeah. the kids carry. The only one that we don't get a lot of is Jen Jen. Yeah, we don't, we don't really get like a, she doesn't really explain herself. No, it's like she has kind of run away from home, basically. Yeah, that's, and, yeah. And we, we don't really get why that happens. And, and yeah. maybe it's nice to have that little bit of mystery left that we don't get... Well, it's also Every... since she also was like her character is also a little bit, you know, because she didn't talk until, you know. Yes. So like a fun character. Uh, a great thing about her was the great trope subverting scene where they get the cool car. Mm-hmm. The street rod, classic muscle car kind of thing. And Alex 
recognizes it because his dad had one. So like classic boy thing, that's my dad's cool car. I know everything about that car. But then he gets in the car and says, I can't drive a stick. And then it's the girl that jumps in the car and mm-hmm. takes care of business. So that was a great Which is me. subversion me. of the trope. Me learning to drive on a stick when all my friend's parents have automatics. <laughs> well, I just, I couldn't help but like getting the picture in my head of her playing racing video games. Yeah. You know, like from the time she was tiny, I could just picture her like drifting in video games. And then now she really gets the chance to get behind a wheel (laughs) and take care of business. So that was fun. Getting back to the beginning, the aliens invade, everyone freaks out. And and in the, the freak out, they leave behind this group of kids that has wandered off where they're not supposed to be. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's very believable that under these circumstances, that would happen. Oh, absolutely. Because uh, you're like, everyone get in the car, we're leaving, and then you're just yeah. gone. And they, pro- you know, and they could have waited for, I don't know how many minutes, and then they just had to say, you know, we got to go. We've got dozens yeah. and dozens of kids, yeah. and there's only three kids missing because the yeah. one kid wasn't from camp, so... They had three mm-hmm. stragglers, and mm-hmm. they just they just had to go. It was one of those hard decisions yeah. that you would have to make under those circumstances. And so you have this huge coincidence that sets this in motion that the capsule from the space station happens to land there. So they mm-hmm. get the a little bit of hardware, this key that they need to use to help uh, destroy the aliens. Uh, but, you know, then that sets up the fact that these kids are kind of forced into this position position uh of taking it on their own but then i really liked that they did try to as soon as they had a reasonable chance to hand it off to adults they did so and and then were just ready to be kids again and and get on a bus and get you know taken care of but then the army guys get wiped out again by the aliens and so then once again it's thrust upon them so much fun. Then they meet that guy in the in the jail. That was a nice twist to the story too. That you're given this yeah impossible decision to make. It's like, well, he's locked up. I would not. <laughs> he's got to be a bad guy. But on the other hand, there's an alien invasion, and if we leave him in there, he's just going to get blown up and killed. And and so it was a great, uh, real moral quandary that these. 13-year-olds get put in this position to try to make that decision. That was a a great scene. It was a great scene. I've just been watching my so my I don't know how what if I've said anything about this on the podcast before, but my favorite my favorite podcast other than our other than all of our friends podcasts and our podcast <laughs> obviously is on um, the podcast called My Favorite Murder, which is a true crime podcast. Um yes. so, so I've yeah. and I've been re-listening. I listen to them nonstop constantly. <laughs> Um, I've been reading this true crime book they recommended. Their book is coming out soon. I've been watching I Survived Nonstop. And so this dude starts manipulating these kids. And I'm like, you let him die. You <laughs> leave him in here and there and you let him die. I've been watching I Survived for the past two days. I was like, you him. <laughs> and then, yeah, it definitely comes back to bite them because it turns out he really is a really bad guy. And is willing to try to risk everything to try to make a buck off of giving the key. I didn't blame them though. Back to the. I was like, 
good boy. You got a good, you know, what's right and wrong, but like you're also yeah. 13. <laughs> yeah. It was, it, it would have been hard to make that decision. Certainly. As Zach said at the top of the show, I believe is that they have like 70 miles. Yeah. That they have to try to go from the camp to JPL so that they can, uh, help the scientists there fire up some satellite weapons that will take out the mothership. Well, they use a nice technique that you just get a, uh, a little, uh, you know, caption on the screen that tells you how many miles. And so the movie can then jump over the quiet spots where they've just been walking or biking for miles and mm-hmm. miles and miles. And then you get to another sort of turning point. You see, okay, they're getting closer, but then, you know, Stuff goes wrong. Oh, mm-hmm. I forgot to mention, right at the beginning, when they first make their escape, they have trouble because Alex has never learned to ride a bike. And mm-hmm. so then the kids have to teach him. And you get this great moment where the terror of the alien invasion falls away and there is no more pure joy being 13 years old and riding your bike with your friends. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yes, 100%. You just get this scene. It's like I almost get misty-eyed just thinking about it because it it was such – to see the pure joy on Alex's face as as he rides a bike for the first time. And so you get moments of just watching them. And he's with his new friends and they're on the road. And of course, there's no traffic because of the invasion. So they're just riding all over the road. And and the kids that know how to ride bikes are, you know, taking their hands off the handlebars. And that is, is such a uh, a moment of pure childhood joy. Mm-hmm. And then it gets the rude awakening at the end when they find themselves overlooking LA and seeing that the city is just really being seriously attacked. Yeah. Bombed. Yeah. I I mentioned this to Zach about like movies dropping directly to Netflix, like his movie and like the new, and uh, the Cloverfield paradox. Um, But part of me and I like believe in it. I'm here for it. But part of me wishes so much that this dropped into theaters because I really wanted to, (laughs) I want to see three different cuts of that trailer and I want to go see this movie in the theater and I want to see a bunch of 13 year olds and I'm just thinking about like when I was in like eighth grade and like the big thing was like I remember through junior high and high school um my friends and I every time there was a new Hunger Games movie we went to see the premiere and it was always like such a huge thing you know when you can't drive yet and so like you're all and you're like like kicking it at the mall or whatever and it's like oh just like think about you're in eighth grade and the best thing ever is like being able to go by yourself with your friends to see a movie and like yeah, just being yeah. in eighth grade and going by yourself to see this movie, I would lose my mind. I really think that this movie accomplished what it set out to do to Oh, definitely. To just have a fun movie about kids in the style of those classic films that, you know, you can enjoy together and there's well, and like Zach said, having it set now and so yeah. Having contemporary music, uh, having a contemporary dialogue, having the use of the phones. Oh, that was one last thing. That was great. They get the kids into camp. And of course, the first thing they do is they're like, okay, kids, everyone turns in their cell phones. No cell phones in camp. 
And then as soon as the kids go off on their adventure, it's like they all have their cell phones. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that is just so classic that they either – you know, didn't turn them in when they were supposed to, or they grabbed them I didn't, before I didn't they think left. That. You, never, you never had to hide your cell phone from an adult. Exactly, exactly, because there weren't such <laughs> things when I was a kid. And so I, that, that was such a great contemporary bit. Oh, man. Oh, uh, another last thing. Jen Jen has this uh, pamphlet for the summer camp, and she goes and finds the exact location. That's how they get separated from everyone because she's out in the woods and she finds this beautiful overlook over this lake and she recreates the pose of the person on the yeah, pamphlet. Yeah, it's like the kid just like, like throwing like, their yeah, arms in the arms air. Arms up and it's just a like this joyous, freeing kind of moment that she's in this beautiful location and she's raising her hands up above her head and... It was it was very moving, and and then it gets interrupted. Yeah, and, that was sweet. And hijinks mm-hmm. ensue. Oh, and one last thing I wanted to mention. <laughs> I, I guess this is my third. My third last thing I want to mention <laughs> was the the introduction of oh, what was his name? But they were playing this great like hip hop music, and he was like dancing down the stairs and dancing. Darius. Darius. Oh, oh my gosh, God. that was so good. He was so funny and. Actually, and you know, the other thing that I was going to say, the line that made me burst out laughing both when I watched the trailer before it dropped and then when I watched the movie mm-hmm. is when um, Gabriel, they're watching the alien ships go by and Gabriel mm-hmm. goes, it's Independence Day. And then Darius goes, it's June. Yeah. Gabriel. Like, <laughs> that was the funniest thing I've ever heard. And that's all the time we have for this episode. You can follow Zach on Twitter at Muzak. It sounds like the music you hear in an elevator, but it's spelled M-U-S-E-Z-A-C-K. Get it? Tune in next time for episode 56, All Aboard the Hogwarts Express, when Alice Skypes in from London to tell us about visiting the Making of Harry Potter exhibit at the Warner Brothers Studio in Watford and seeing Harry Potter and the Cursed Child live on stage. That is, unless I change the order of the shows again, like I do. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a summer camp on the rim of the world. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.